Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. This is the 228th episode of the podcast. So in whatever digital way you found your way to this, thank you for listening. Now, if you found this in an analog format, do let me know who your bootleg casting across uh, tape supplier is. I'm very interested. Today, we're going to be talking about records. But before we get to that, we are two weeks away from another Casting Across Fly Fishing Accusations edition of the podcast. And all that is is a interaction podcast. So I do my best to answer every email, every social media chirp, every comment on the website. But every once in a while, something comes through and it's just a really good uh, question or it's a really good uh, follow up on an article or on a podcast. And so it gives me an opportunity to add like another five or seven minutes uh, down a little bit of a rabbit trail or to offer some sort of clarification if I didn't articulate a point very well and somebody was asking a question about that. So if you have a question like that, if you have a comment, if you do, you know, want to point out something I said and say you disagree and I can interact with you on that, then do let me know. Matthew at castingacross.com. You can also use the contact form on the website. You can leave a comment under any article on castingacross.com, or you can use any of my social media uh, sources to, to reach out and see if something that you have to say is something that will make it on the accusations podcast. So as I mentioned, we are going to be talking about records today. Now, when I'm talking about records, I'm not talking about big fish. That's fun, though. I mean, that's that's worth talking about. And, you know, honestly, for the first years that I was fishing, so in the mid to late 90s, it was at that time where there was this anticipation, particularly in the bass fishing world, of um, 
uh, the world record George Perry's bass from the 1930s being broken because there was all of these large 20-ish pound fish that were being caught in California reservoirs, fish that were getting fat on stocked rainbow trout and things like that. And so there was this uh, this sense that the record was going to get broken and uh, it actually got broken slash tied. The way that the IFGA does records is um, you have to beat it by a few ounces. And so there was a Japanese angler who caught a 22 and a half pound bass in, in uh, Japan, but it wasn't enough to to set itself apart as the world record that happened sometime in the last 15 years. But anyway, what does this have to do with the records that we're, I'm talking about, which is record keeping? Um, and it has to do with the fact that to catch a big fish, it takes uh, a methodological approach. It takes being very detail oriented, paying attention to lots of little variables. And so that's the kind of records, so record keeping that we're going to talk about today. Now, why should you keep records uh, and why should you listen to me talk about records for 20 minutes? Well, for a few main reasons, I'm going to talk about four, four main reasons uh, of why you should keep records of your fishing. And uh, you can take them all. You can take one of them. You can uh Take one of them in the slightest form, and I think that you will be uh, benefiting from them. So uh, what does it mean to keep records? Well, it doesn't mean you need to keep a formal fishing journal or a fishing diary. Uh, I don't know many anglers who sit down after a day on the water and, you know, the dear diary, today I went fishing. But that's not a bad idea. Um, and it can be anything from a little moleskin notebook to a fancy leather bound uh, book that you have that you you can you know write in uh, all the way down to a legal pad. Or as what I often do when I take notes is I use Excel. I use a spreadsheet that allows me to organize things in the way that I want to see them. So the first kind of record keeping is basically the fishing journal. So if you've ever been given a fishing journal, you've ever seen these at the at the bookstore, uh, what is it? It is date, time you went fishing, what was the temperature, what was the, the sky like, what was the barometer, what kind of fish did you catch, what did you use to catch them on, and any other details. So this is really just aggregating data. Now, what's the point of this, aside being maybe obsessive compulsive? Um, well, the point of this is that you can begin to see patterns. So this is what relates back to the, you know, the, the world record largemouth that I was talking about earlier, being able to figure out when certain fish feed. Um, you can you can get this information the more and more you fish. You know certain seasons. You know certain uh, cloud cover. You know certain rainfall, and all of these things trigger different fish feeding. So, for example. Um, on, on some of the, the creeks I, I used to fish in Pennsylvania, I knew that uh, as a rain fall happened the previous day and the water was still off color but coming down, and if it was still overcast, that for a number of reasons, the bigger brown trout would be out. Fish that I usually wouldn't encounter until uh, right before dark or even after dark, these fish would now be out of their um, out of their holding spots and being in their feeding lanes um, in, in times where the water was still off color and it was still a bit dark out, but it was almost as if they were tricked by the, the light of the, of the sun being obscured as well as from, from the cloud cover, as well as from the, uh, turbidity and the, 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 all of the gunk. And that was still in the water after the rain was coming down. So, I mean, that's a pattern that I didn't need to write down. It was just something that I observed, but I kind of wonder how many other small variables I would have noticed had I kept some sort of record. So is this something where you need to go out and buy an angling journal and fill in every one of those things? You need to like go home and figure out what the barometer was. 
No, you don't need to do that. Um, but what you can do is start to just keep a record. I went fishing today. This is the temperature. This is how I did. These are the flies I used. What you might even do in a situation like this is you might think that you do really well with a fly. That like this is a great fly because maybe you had a good season with it maybe three four years ago. Um, that you were fishing a um, I don't know to pick a pick a random fly a a, a blue wing olive in the springtime and you caught lots of fish and so now you are always fishing a blue wing olive and you think yeah this is a fish I, a fly I catch fish on. But if you were to keep records, you realize, you know what, I'm actually not catching as many fish on that as I thought. And it's just that this is a comfort fly and this is a security fly, but it's really not as productive as I thought it was. And so maybe there's another reason why I was catching fish or I just got lucky that one season. So little things like that, you can start to figure out. You can also figure out patterns. Um, and these things can really be helpful in the long run. And here's another example of that. I have a friend that was that lived on a stream, uh, incredibly involved in conservation. And because he kept a pretty rudimentary, but at the same time, thorough angling journal, when they came in to do some stream surveys, his records, although they weren't scientific, although they weren't official, I mean, he didn't electroshock, he just fished a lot. He was able to demonstrate how the, um, the, the, the brown trout had really come in and displaced the uh, brook trout, in a particular part of the stream, over the last 10 years. And he showed that there, there was a significant shift, a, a um, empirically, you know, however someone's journal can be empirical, an empirically measurable shift in that. Now, is that why you should keep your journals? No, but there could be interesting things. If you're fishing in a stream that has different species of trout or different species of fish, you might notice season after season how things shift and how things change. And it's just, it, it's maybe for a point of curiosity. And that should be good enough. I mean, you shouldn't do something simply because it's going to yield results. Uh, there should be a sense of joy in it. We'll talk about that with kind of the fourth, the fourth thing here in a second. Uh, so the first thing is keeping records because you never know how that data could be useful to you. So pick whatever fields you like, pick whatever fields you think are helpful for you. I think bare minimum, you know, to, to keep the date, to keep the, the temperature, to keep where you fished, what you were using and what you caught. Um, whether that be number, size, species, that's up to you. But that's just a, a kind of a good way to get some some details. And even little things like, if, if again, if, if you're fishing for trout in a river, there's less variables. If you're fishing for fish in a lake, that's when you really start to notice things. You really start to notice uh, differences in where fish are holding, their depth based upon seasonality. And that can be really helpful because as fancy as we think we are as fly fishers, when we're fishing in three foot runs or, you know, three foot, you know, two foot riffles um, on a stretch of river, uh, if you're trying to fish a big reservoir or a big natural lake and you're trying to locate fish, not just across the surface of that water, but also down 10, 15, 20, 50 feet, uh, there's a whole other series of variables you have to take into account. And so record keeping is very, very helpful when it comes to uh when it comes to that kind of fishing, because your electronics, they're going to help you once you find the fish, but you have to find the fish before you can get your electronics to hone in on where those fish are. All right. So that's the first kind of record keeping. And again, spreadsheet is great because then you can sort by where you fished, when you fished. Uh, you can sort by how many fish you caught. You can sort by other variables, other notes. I love spreadsheets. I keep spreadsheets for, for everything. And here's a, here's another thing I keep spreadsheets for. I keep spreadsheets for my gear. Um, and for a few reasons. For one, it's to know kind of how long I've had stuff. Um, and this is helpful for rods. It's helpful for reels. But where it's really helpful is fly line. 
I keep a just a quick spreadsheet whenever I take a spool of fly line out of the box and I string it up on a reel, I note when that was. And then what I also do is I note who made the fly line, what kind of fly line it is. Uh, because although certain brands and more and more these days, particularly in the higher end lines, they're going to have that printed uh, somewhere on that that line, usually in that the head section and also on the uh, the end that you attach to your backing. But whether you lose that, it fades, uh, you have to snip it back, or you buy a fly line that doesn't have that, it's good to know what line you have on a reel, especially if it's not the line that you use every day. If it's the line you use every day, you're probably going to remember what it is. But to keep some sort of record of what it is, is helpful. But then also what you now have is you have a date of when you started using that line. Uh, there's a chance that you might say, okay, I, I haven't used that line that much. You know, I, I can't believe it's failing already. This is awful. I'm never going to buy from brand X ever again because this line should have lasted a lot longer. But then you go back and you realize, you know what? I've had it for like six years and I fished it pretty hard. That's probably worth the $60, $70 that I paid for it or something to that effect. Um, for me, it gives me a, a a time to go through my you know entire drawer full of reels and look at those and say, you know what, this line's been on there for a few years and I fished it pretty hard. Uh, I, I try to do a good job every season of looking at my line, but I haven't used this reel or this line you know, for whatever reason. I just haven't been fishing uh, a, sink, a sink tip. I haven't been fishing uh, a floating line in the salt. And so this line's been, you know, even though this is one of my main reels, I haven't fished it that much this year or this season. So it gives me a chance to go back and look at it and, and give it a, a clean, give it an inspection. And then also I, I, I'm not guessing as to how old it is and if it's falling apart, you know, is it is it falling apart prematurely or is this really what a five-year-old line should look like if it gets used? So for lines, it's a good idea to keep a record of stuff. And then other things too. You know, I, I've had that conversation with some people. Oh, I bought, you know, the waiters from this brand and man, they're just, they just, they, they fell apart. Okay, well, how long did you have them? I don't know. I guess I got them like, oh, I guess I've had them for like five or six years. Well, waiters that if you're fishing hard out of waiters for five or six years, and for a lot of people, they don't take great care of them. They don't store them well. Five or six years is probably what you should expect. And whether you pay $100 for them or $400 for them, um, if you're not taking care of them, five or six years is not bad. So that's a you problem. It's not a waiter problem. Now, could they fail because they were poorly made? Yeah, but there's there's way to tell that. Um, so even just keeping a record of when you acquired things, it helps you pay attention to, to you know, is this something that I'm not going to trust this brand again, or maybe I should... Uh, take better care of my gear because things are falling apart prematurely. So I like to keep records in that way. I also like to, uh, you know, keep a, a record of, of what exactly something is, um, and maybe a couple of notes on where I got it from just so that I can have a, a, a good kind of memory bank where I'm not guessing where did I get this piece of gear? Uh, how old is this piece of gear? If I bought it used, um, you know, where did I get it from? And note that it's used. Just all those little things. It, it might not have any bearing, but entering that data in for 10 seconds on a line in a spreadsheet, it's, in my opinion, it's worth having. So first, you have your general record keeping. Second, you have keeping track of your gear and where it is and where it's from. And thirdly, I would say keep a record of, of your fish. Uh, I have a friend who's putting a book out soon, and in the back of it, in one of one of the appendices, in one of in the appendix, in an appendix, I'm not sure how you say that. If there's more than one appendix, um, there is the IFGA record 
of of fish all the, the list of all the fish that the ifg recognizes as sport fish and i thought it was pretty cool because first of all it's public domain and secondly it's kind of cool to just look through them but then he put a little checkbox on it when did you catch this fish now all of these hundreds of fish all these hundreds of ocean fish like there's there's no way that anyone is going to have a a, a realistic shot of, of catching all these fish i'm sure somebody has done it however um it's neat to be able to see what you have caught now, I remember growing up and spending some time in Arkansas, spending some time uh, in, in Missouri, spending some time in some other parts of the country, and I just caught weird fish. And as a you know, 14, 15-year-old, you're like, okay, it's not a largemouth bass, throw it back. Um, it's not a trout, throw it back. And now I'm like, I, I wish I knew what that was. And this was before the ubiquity of cell phones and cell phone cameras. And so I don't have a record of those things. Um, but I'm sure there's some weird fish that, you know, I know I caught weird fish, fish I, I couldn't even ID. Um, but it would be cool to have a record saying, okay, I caught that for no other reason than to say, yeah, I caught that fish. Now that might not have any allure to you. That might sound just completely contrary to the ethos of fly fishing, but to keep a record of the fish that you have caught, and then even think of your personal best, not in a competitive sense. Although if you want to, that's fine. But just an idea of saying, yeah, I've caught a 20 inch rainbow trout. I've caught a 24 inch brown trout. I've caught a six pound, you know, large mouth bass, whatever it might be, just to keep some sort of record of that and to be able to celebrate. Okay. I've never caught a, I was talking to somebody recently actually, and they've never caught a brown trout. I, I don't know how, I don't know why they've caught, they've caught big rainbows. They've caught big brookies. They've caught cutthroats. They've caught big fish out in the ocean. For whatever reason, they haven't caught a brown trout. And part of that is, I think, where we, where where they live. But um, it's just something that she is pursuing. I'm like, okay, go for it. I could probably tell you where to go and how to do it. But um, I think she's probably gotten that advice before. It just hasn't worked out. But it's just little small milestones and things that people can pursue. And that might be something that you're interested in. Or if you're fishing in the ocean, uh, that's a great way to catch new species every time you go out. Um, and and ways to, to uh, change up the goal of how you fish. Um, I know people who are into microfishing. Uh, and if you if want a rabbit hole to fall down, look at microfishing. And this is where you get into these tiny fish that are not sport fish. But there are so many, so much variety and diversity in maybe even the fish that the streams that you fish regularly, and the people that do microfishing are catching lots of different fish because what they're going for is is basically bagging all different species and trying to collect the biodiversity of of a stream and be able to catalog it in their own head and their own experience. So that's a third thing that you can keep record of and for. All right. So general record keeping, second gear. Third, uh, what and how big and, and where you caught fish. And lastly, and this is the one that really ties into casting across, it's a great way to preserve memories. Um, there's been times where I have kept a journal and times that I have not. And as someone who now writes about and speaks about and shares fly fishing multiple times a week, I wish I had been more diligent in my younger years to keep records. I have, I mean, I'm talking 25 years ago, some of these things, and sometimes they kind of blend together and I have a hard time of recalling, did 
the, both of these happen things at the same time, or these two different things. Uh, was on this stream or that stream, and has nothing to do with uh, with you know losing my memory. Hopefully, uh, it has everything to do with the fact that I just fished so much. You know, twenty five years ago, twenty years ago, fifteen years ago, that a lot of those things that were on the same streams, fishing for the same fish, using the same gear, probably wearing the same clothes, uh, they start to blend together. So keeping records and saying this happened on this day and beyond beyond this happened this day, this is how I felt. This is what I thought. This is some obscure thing I noticed. Those small uh, words, and if you take pictures, those images can really become touchstones that tether to you, you to that experience. So whether you plan on writing about fly fishing or doing a podcast about fly fishing or sharing your experiences with your children and grandchildren, simply for the sake of remembering a few quick notes, one photo that stands out, maybe a lot more than a picture of a fish might, can bring you back to that moment and allow you to enjoy reflecting on the experience that you had. If you don't enjoy the idea of keeping track of how many or how big a fish you caught, if you don't enjoy the idea of cataloging your gear. And if you certainly don't enjoy the idea of keeping all of the data that uh, comes out of every fishing trip, then you you still might enjoy the memories that you can keep track of if you just keep a very simple record of your fishing time. That could be in a little moleskin journal. That could be in the spreadsheet. So I would encourage you to, bare minimum, do that. Uh, and, and toy around with it. Try it for a season. Try it for a month. If this is a huge taxing thing, then don't do it. Now, what I will say is whether you use an app or whether you just use like the notes function on your phone, that's a great way to do it. Um, you, you, it's right there. You can do it on the water. Uh, I wouldn't suggest that. You can do it in the car after you're on the water. You know, it's just a very simple way to to add a couple of details. I am not a fan of apps that uh, kind of record your data and then share them from a crowd share sourcing kind of uh, um, process. That's that's. I don't think that's a helpful thing to you or the angling community. But there are plenty of apps that you can just record information for yourself and uh, it syncs up with your desktop or something else. And I think that's really good. Uh, Trout Routes is one of those apps that doesn't do that. So I talked about Trout Routes a few weeks ago and they they do not uh, share your information that uh, you can store on their app. All right, there you go. Uh, record keeping. Not record holding, not record breaking, but record keeping in fly fishing. I think it's worth your time. I think it's something that if you even just use a little bit of it, you will definitely appreciate it and it will be helpful for you both on the water today and in the future. This week on castingacross.com, the first article is called Don't Step Past Bootfoot Waders. Don't step past bootfoot waders. See what I did there. So uh, I haven't ever owned a pair of bootfoot waders. Never, ever, um, because that's just not what you do in fly fishing. You find a nice pair of waders that fit your body, and you find a nice pair of boots that fit your feet, and you uh, you lace those suckers on, and you go fishing. Well, that was all fine and good until I started hunting ducks a few years ago, and then my feet and my ankles got so cold and I said, never again. <laughs> After that first season, I went out and bought a pair of insulated bootfoot waders. And I thought, you know what? I've been told this stability is going to be bad and the traction is going to be bad. And But it is what it is. I'd rather fall down than be cold all the time. Let me tell you, I'm, I was okay walking on ice, walking on snow, walking on mud, walking on rocky river bottoms, uh, getting in and out of a kayak. 
doing all sorts of the things that you would do while fly fishing, I did in these boot foot waders, and I was fine. Now, there are some drawbacks. There are some things that aren't going to be the same. They're not going to take the place of my nice fly fishing waders and fly fishing boots. But if you're fishing in cold weather and you or you are fishing um, in the in the cold water of maybe a tailwater or something like that, then definitely check out not just boot foot waders, but insulated boot foot waders. And the waders that I have are uh, insulated boot foot waders where you can take the insulation out of the wader body themselves. So they're great. I absolutely am 100% sold on the idea. Um, I am past the point of fly fishing snobbery, um, and I am happy to wear these waders, uh, when I, whether I'm fishing or hunting or just hanging out outside. That's not true. I wouldn't do that. The Wednesday article on casting across was called fly fishing gear for life, fly fishing gear for life. And this kind of explores the idea that if you buy something nice, whether it be a pair of sunglasses, which is, there's a picture of me wearing some new fly fishing sunglasses on the front of the article, or a nice shirt or a nice pair of pants, or even socks or underwear or a hat or a rain jacket, whatever it is, uh, don't be afraid to wear it out and about. Now you might not, that might be to make total sense to you, where if you buy a piece of fly fishing gear, you're going to wear it as much as you can, as hard as you can, uh, no matter what you're doing. But I know that for me, and for a lot of other people, that is, okay, no, this is for fly fishing. I'm saving this. Um, I'm going to buy a $400 whatever, but I'm only going to use it when I go fishing, you know, every other week. Um, so different people have different perspectives. And I'm not telling you how to do it, but just, I would say, if you want to get something nice uh, that's fly fishing focused or fly fishing uh, kind of specific, don't hesitate to use it doing normal stuff. So what I'm not saying is don't mow the lawn in your, you know, really nice flats boots, but uh, don't be afraid to wear that nice fly fishing shirt, uh, you know, out for a casual dinner. Um, now, you know, if you don't like all the buttons and flaps and capes and, and snaps and all that sort of stuff, then that's what I'm talking about. But if it's a nice, comfortable shirt, wear it. If it's a nice, comfortable pants, wear them. Uh, I've got some awesome under waiter pants. They're just soft and they fit well and they stretch. Great little pants. Uh, they cost a lot of money. So I don't, again, I don't wear them when I'm wrestling with my kids, but I wear them around. They're great pants. And I don't think that wearing them out and around or, you know, wearing them out with the guys is going to uh, cause them to fail the next time I go fishing. So just a couple of words on that. This week's recommendation on the podcast, I'm actually going to recommend the waders that I was talking about earlier. So if you are looking for a pair of waterfowl waders, or you're looking for a pair of cold fishing uh, boot foot waders, check out the Frog Togs Grand Refuge series of waders. I think mine are the 3.0. Um, now, I, I will say... There's a lot more fabric in these than there is in fly fishing waders. That's the only really cr big criticism I have on them. Um, even with the uh, the insulated liner inside of them, they're a little bit baggy. It allows me to move, it allows me to flex, but I haven't fished in fast moving water, but I could really guess that in faster moving water, you'd feel that current against you a lot more because there's more fabric. I bought it in the slimmest fit possible, and it's still an issue. Uh, but that was not something that bothered me while I was on the water. It wasn't didn't bother me. I was sitting in the tree in the in the in the tree stand. Yeah, I don't shoot ducks out of trees. I promise. And sitting on the uh, in the duck blind didn't bother me. I was in the in the kayak didn't bother me. I was walking through the woods. Um, but that is just one drawback. But otherwise, awesome, comfortable, uh, foot fit in great. 
they they were they moved around fine there's only the bare minimum features but it's everything that you need the zip in and zip out liner is fantastic i was able to wear them early season and in unseasonably warm days late in the season and then i kept that zip in liner in and i was able to basically hunt in my work clothes so i had on like a pair of khakis and just like a, a like a dress shirt and threw these waders on with a um with a, a hunting jacket on top and i was totally fine to fish you know from or hunt from whatever five to nine in the morning and uh, i was plenty warm uh, so definitely check them out. I'll put a link to the Frog Togs Grand Refuge uh, Boot Foot Insulated Zip In Zip Zip Out Insulated Waders on the show notes for this page at castingacross.com. Uh, real quick, um, if you ever have any questions about a recommendation I make, uh, if you have want more details, let me know. Matthew at castingacross.com. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe to your favorite podcast app and read the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com for three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Mm-hmm.